Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to hold your word in our hands, to be able to read it ourselves, to take it home and ponder it, let its truth sink deep into us. So, Father, I pray that we would be receptive of your word right now. I pray that you would equip us with your word, make us better instruments for your use, because we have spent this time together in your word. So, let us seek not just to hear it, but to apply it in our lives, that we might live lives that glorify you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. This is my last sermon here. Um, if my calculations are correct, this is number 99. Uh, but throw in a couple that, that Pastor Steve talked about, and maybe I'm over 100. So, um, my last sermon. There have been a lot of lasts lately. We had our last class of uh, discovering more about River Hills last Sunday night. Um, about a week before that, we had our last leadership group. Uh, last week, we had our last congregational meeting together. Uh, we had our last leadership summit yesterday. Uh, I was preparing for my last elder meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to share a word of encouragement with the elders, and, and I was just drawn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Just those last two, uh, last, that one last verse that, that was read, where Paul said, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. I just wanted to encourage the elders with that assurance that, that God who has called them is faithful and, and he will bring all to pass that, that he intends. I wanted, though, to set the passage in its context, so take your Bibles, if you would. Uh, if you don't have one open, go ahead and grab one from one of the chairs near you. You'll find it on page 988. I'd like for us just to, to look at this passage together, and what, what we'll see right away is, is that... Um, that, that verse, verse 24, is set in the context of a paragraph that is itself a benediction. So that reminder that the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it is, is a part of a benediction. And even that paragraph, verses 23 and 24, um, comes at the end of a bigger section that goes back to verse 12, that... Um, that was read a moment ago. And so um, that section in, in my ESV Bible has a title, and it says, Final Instructions and Benediction. So this would be the conclusion of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. All of Paul's letters begin with doctrine and end with application. So take Romans, for instance, uh, chapters 1 through 11 are doctrine, and 12 through 16 are what to do with that doctrine. Take Ephesians, 1 through 3 is doctrine, and 4 through 6 is what to do with that doctrine. It's the same with 1 Thessalonians. This is the so what section of a letter that has been largely given to dealing with questions about the end times. 
And at the time Paul wrote it, I don't think he was writing, thinking about writing a second one to them. And so what we have here captured at the end of 1 Thessalonians is, is Paul's desires for them, his, his wishes for them, his, his final words to them at that time anyway. And so we ask, what would he want to say to a church that could well be his parting thoughts, his final words? What's the practical so what that he wants them to take away? What's he want them to do with the truths of this letter? I see here Paul's concern for the church, and I see it coming through in three topics that Paul addresses here in this section before he gives them this final blessing. And I'd like for us to look at those three topics together this morning. He speaks to the Thessalonians about how they are to regard their leaders and each other and themselves. And then he gives that final blessing and assurance that God who has called them is faithful and he'll accomplish it. So we, we begin with regard for leaders. There's a, a handout or an insert in your program with a lot of fill-in-the-blank stuff. So kids, you can keep busy today. Uh, adults, I hope you will as well. So he, he speaks in verses 12 and 13 about how we are to regard our leaders. And he says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. How are we to regard our leaders? And for those of you who've already written in that first blank the word respect, I'm going to give you a different word. Ha-ha. Learn to wait. Um, and that word is know. Know them. Know them. That's the literal rendering of of the word that's translated respect in the ESV. So when he says respect those who labor among you, he's saying know them, know them, really know them. We uh, use the word recognize in a couple of different ways. If I haven't seen you in a number of years and, and we happen to run into one another in, in a crowd, I. I'll recognize you maybe, you know, I'll say, oh, I remember you. There's another way to use that word recognize, isn't there? When we want to honor someone, we, we want to recognize them in a special way. We want to give them some recognition. And this word is, is one of those as well. So literally it means to know them. You could say recognize them for who they are. There is a respect that comes from knowing a person, from, from really knowing a person. I've gotten to know your leaders over these past two years, and, and I can speak of their integrity. I, I have seen it in action time after time. At times, I have heard things that people have said of them, and I, I've wanted to say, oh, if you... If you really knew them, if you really could recognize them for who they are, it, you, if you could see into their heart, you would know that they're doing the very best they can in a very tough situation. That doesn't mean they're always going to get it right, but, but seek to know them. Don't assume you already do. 
Seek to really know them and you'll come to trust them. Know them. A couple of sub points here in verses 12 and 13. Paul says, see what it is they're doing on your behalf. They're laboring among you, Paul says in verse 12. They're laboring among you. That word laboring implies working to the point of exhaustion. That's what leaders do. Church leadership is sometimes really hard work, and, and you never punch off the clock. You're always on duty. Paul um, writes in 2 Corinthians 11 about his sufferings for the Lord. You can remember some of the things Paul endured for the cause of Christ. Whippings, beatings, shipwrecks, being stoned and left for dead, being imprisoned. He recounts all of that in 2 Corinthians 11. And then in verse 28, he adds this. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's what leaders do. They, they feel the weight of that responsibility. Paul felt it. Your leaders do too. They labor hard on your behalf. And he asks us to know them as they do. Know them in their labor. And notice, he says they do it among us. Not from a comfortable distance. They do it among us. They're also described in verse 12 as being over us. It's an interesting combination. They're among us. And in a sense, they're over us. But that phrase doesn't imply control. What it implies is leadership and care. Leadership and care. The word literally means they stand before us. Stand before. They go first. They lead. This same word is used in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, of one who leads. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible it'll say, gives aid. They lead and they give aid. That's a good description. The same word is used of Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 to say she has benefited others. She's not trying to control people. She's trying to benefit them, and your leaders do too. It's a good word to describe the work of elders, providing leadership and care. And I want to encourage you to know them, really know them, recognize them for who they are, respect them as they do this work. They have to deal with issues that are complex and with information that they can't share. That's why you elect men of proven character. You're going to have to trust them in those times when you don't know the whole story. The text says they are called upon also to admonish you. And what that means is they will be applying God's word to your life as they apply it to their own. I don't know if you've noticed, but people don't so much like being admonished these days. You notice that. Categories of right and wrong have become blurred in our culture and we find people who claim the name of Christ doing some things the Bible says are just plain wrong. And when someone admonishes them, they don't want to hear it. It takes a lot of diplomacy to point out someone's error these days. 
Well, that's a part of what God calls your leaders to do here, to admonish you. Are you open to it? And in all of this, we're called, first of all, to respect them, to recognize them, to know them. So know them. And the second thing he tells us about our leaders is that we need to esteem them very highly. Verse 13. Literally, esteem them beyond all measure. That's a lot of esteem. Let me ask you, do you perform better when you're well-regarded or when people don't respect you? Anybody perform better when you're disrespected and suspected and, and criticized? I don't know about you. I perform better when I know I'm well-regarded, when my efforts are appreciated. And Paul asks that of us toward our leaders. And according to verse 13, the basis of this high regard is Christian love. The word that Paul uses here is agape. It's the same word that's used every time we're commanded to love in the New Testament. It's, uh, it's a wonderful, rich word. I, I would define agape love as desiring God's best for a person and then applying yourself to bringing that about. Desiring God's best for the person and then applying yourself to bringing that about. The, the idea, this, this agape love isn't devoid of feelings, but it's not based on feelings. It, it's centered not in our emotions, but in our will. So you, you can't command emotions, and, and God commands us to love like this. It's a matter of the will. And so we choose to extend agape love in a relationship. And so it's possible to love someone you don't particularly like. That's good news. But here's the thing. Agape love is redemptive. It changes things. It can take a bad situation and turn it around. When we choose to give agape love, we choose to give grace and to encourage someone to live into all that God intends them to be. And I want to encourage you to give that to your leaders. And we're to do it, why? Well, verse 13 tells us, esteem them very highly in love because of what? Their work. Their work. They're shouldering a big load on our behalf. So esteem them beyond all measure because of it. And then he says one more thing about what we're to do with regard to our leaders. And, and that is, be at peace. Be at peace. And, and since this request is still in the context of regarding our leaders, I would add, for them. Be at peace for them, for their sake. So know them, esteem them, be at peace for them. This peace isn't just the absence of strife. If uh, Rabbi Paul were using his native Hebrew here, Instead of Greek, he would be using what word for peace? Shalom. Shalom. It, it means wholeness. It's not just absence of strife. It's, it's wholeness. A body at peace, a body that is whole, that is healthy, is a joy to lead. And we can choose to make their work a joy or we can make it a burden. 
In Hebrews 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The NIV says, Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, how do we regard our leaders? Know them, esteem them, be at peace for them. And then he goes on to talk in verses 14 and 15 about how we are to regard each other. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul introduces this section, these couple of verses, in the same way that he introduced the, the previous section, verse 12. Do you see it? See the similarity? Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers. And so he's, he's taking them on to another slightly different subject here. He's talking about what everyone is to do for everyone else in the body. The well-being of the body isn't up to the leaders alone. It's for all of us. There's a business author that I appreciate named Patrick Lencioni. Any Lencioni fans here? Anybody read business books besides me? Okay, good, good, good. He wrote this, this book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And so if ever you are working on a team or leading a team or building a team, it's, it's a great read, very helpful. But one of the dysfunctions he talks about that sometimes will plague a team is lack of accountability. People aren't willing to be accountable. And when he speaks about accountability in an organization, he's not talking just about accountability to the leaders. He's not just talking about vertical accountability. He's talking about accountability among everybody in the organization, everybody on the team. It's accountability to each other. It's a 360-degree thing for the team. We all hold one another accountable. We all have responsibilities toward each other, just like the interdependent parts of a body. Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that was read earlier he speaks about the concern each part of the body shows to all the other parts. The body can't function if any of its parts don't have a concern for the others. And so we are all different from each other as members of the body, and so our needs are different too. Different people require different care. And what he's saying here is it's up to all of us to provide that care. There will be some idle ones in the body. Paul tells us to uh, admonish the idle. This word idle implies people who are disordered, uh, people who are lazy. I'd, I'd sum up its uses as suggesting it's someone who hasn't quite got it all together yet. Idle ones, Paul says, need admonishing. 
It's the same word that's used in verse 12. It has to do with instructing someone regarding their behavior and belief. And both are vitally important. It matters what we believe. It matters how we live. The Christian life isn't automatic. God doesn't just zap us when we come to faith in Christ and make us instantly mature. We're all in process. And some are moving more slowly than others. They need a good word from someone who's a little further down the road. So give it well. And when someone cares enough to admonish you, receive it well. That's part of what it means to be a healthy body. There will be some faint-hearted ones in the body as well. The word implies people who are losing their motivation, losing heart. Have, Have you been around people who you've seen losing heart? They're the ones having a hard time finishing their race. And Paul says they need encouraging. Encourage the faint-hearted. A number of years ago, when I was a lot younger and a lot fitter, I, I skied the Birkebeiner uh, cross-country ski race. It's a 55-kilometer cross-country ski marathon. And it's, it's the, the hilliest terrain I've ever trained on. Um, and I'll tell you, by the time I was getting near the end of that thing, I was done. I, I was completely exhausted. But there were people along the race course cheering me on. It was amazing. You know, they're, they're, they're applauding and they're cheering. And saying, you can make it. You're going to make it. It was great. They got me through it. When someone is losing heart, they need that from you. You will never regret the word of encouragement you gave or sent to someone. You'll never regret it. What you may regret is the word of encouragement you didn't say or send. So send the note. Make the phone call. Encourage the faint-hearted. There will also be some weak ones in the body. And Paul tells us that weak ones need help. Help the weak. Literally, it's protect them. Protect them. The word means hold against. But it's not like you're holding something against somebody. You're holding somebody against you. You're reaching out. You're pulling them to yourself. You're holding them against you to lend your strength to one who doesn't have much of his own. Help the weak. And then he says, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. All of them need patience. All of them need long-suffering. Now, why would he say that? Well, the kind of people Paul has just been talking about are hard to deal with. They're idle. They're faint-hearted. They're weak. A lot longer than we think they ought to be. We want to see quick turnarounds. But there they are. Still struggling with the same thing week after week, month after month, year after year. And Paul says, be patient with them, all of them. Patience is one thing I sometimes really struggle with. I think, though, of how patient, how long-suffering God has been with me, and I realize I can give that to others because I've received it myself. 
One of the places where I can show my impatience is in traffic. Tina knows that well. It's not like I lay on my horn or, or drive aggressively, but I, I am known to make a comment from time to time about somebody's driving. And uh, Tina generally will say, you know, honey, you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know what's happening in that guy's life. You don't know why he's in such a hurry to get to where he's going. And she's right. If I knew the whole story, I'd give more grace. I have been the recipient of lavish grace. And so I can give grace as well. So be patient with them all. And then in verse 15, he tells us there is to be no payback of wrong for wrong. There are people out there and there, there are some people in here who may do you wrong, but that doesn't give us permission to do it back to them. Instead, we're to pursue the good, verse 15. And that word pursue, or in the ESV, seek the good, is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, coming from the risen Christ to Saul of Tarsus, who's persecuting the church. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you, what, persecuting me? That's the word. Seek good the way Paul, before his conversion, sought Christians. He hunted them down. He, he was aggressive in his pursuit. And Paul's saying here, be that kind of aggressive in terms of pursuing the good for people. And notice that it's not limited to the body of Christ. It extends to all. He says, do good to one another and to everyone. So that's how we are to regard each other. And then he goes on to talk about regard for ourselves in verses 16 to 22. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. How are we to regard ourselves? Two main things here. The first has to do with our outlook. Our outlook in verses 16 through 18. It's a Godward outlook. Rejoicing in God. Prayerful toward God. Thankful to God for what he gives. It's a Godward life orientation. What's it take to live that way? It takes faith. It takes faith to live that way. A daily trust in God to have a Godward life. I know a pastor whose church's goal is this, a life defined by faith every day. That's a good goal. A life defined by faith every day. I want that. We need a faith-filled outlook on life. So, he talks first about our outlook, and then he talks about our stance toward other believers in verses 19 to 22. And I would sum it up as a stance of wise spiritual encouragement. And I've chosen each of those words carefully. Wise spiritual 
encouragement. We don't want to quench the work of the Spirit in someone's life. We don't want to pour cold water on a flickering flame, but rather we want to fan into flame the spark of faith that we see. When you see the incomplete work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life, you can do one of two things. You can shame that person that they're not further along. Or you can congratulate them on what God has begun in them and express your confidence that he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Amen. Don't assume that a person has nothing significant to contribute that's this idea of despising prophecy. Prophecy in that day was something someone wanted to share with the body that they feel they got from God. They feel that God showed them something and they want to share it. And he says, don't, don't uh, despise that, but weigh it carefully. Hang on to what's good. Reject whatever proves to be evil. Paul is concerned for the health of the church in Thessalonica. He speaks of how we regard our leaders and each other and ourselves. And then he gives a blessing. Here's the blessing, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. The blessing. Paul asked God to do something for the church at Thessalonica. And he begins by referring to God as the God of peace. This is the second time he's spoken of peace in this passage. The first time was in verse 13. The shalom of the body. So God is the God of peace. He's the God of shalom. And a healthy body is a body at peace, and the God of peace can give it as we trust in him. So Paul asked the God of peace to sanctify them, to make them holy through and through. He asks God to do it completely, literally to the end of all measure. God's intent for us is that we would be completely sanctified. I long for that in my own life. God wants to see us transformed from the inside out to look more and more like Christ every day until he comes again or until we join him in eternity. And then he asks God to do something else for them. He asks God to keep them. The word implies preserving them, protecting them. There's a military use of the word to guard somebody or something. Guard you. May God guard you. And, and may he do it completely, your whole being, spirit, soul, body. He's not trying to divide us up here. He's, what he's saying is all of us is what God is guarding. There's no aspect of us that he will leave untouched so that we will be found blameless when Jesus returns. And then he asks God to do it all the way to the coming of Jesus, all the way to the end of the age. Completely sanctified completely kept all the way to the end. It's a great aspiration. Can we do that ourselves? Of course not. Of course not. But notice who does it. Paul asked God to do it in verse 23. 
In verse 24, he reminds us that God is faithful and he will do it. His grip is strong when our grip is weak. He is at work even when we don't perceive it. So here we are. After two years, this is my final message to you. I can't think of anything better to end with than the message that Paul sent to the Thessalonians about how they were to regard their leaders and each other and themselves. Not content to stop at doctrine, as important as it is, Paul goes on to talk about how to live that out in the context of the church. And after he fleshes it out, he asks the God of peace to make it reality in their midst. Confident that the one who called them is faithful and he will do it. I leave here in the confidence that he will do the same for you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you are able. We are weak. You take flawed and fallen people. You redeem them. You gather them. You put them together. You give them a mission to reach out with the love of Christ that has reached us. And so, Father, I pray for River Hills Church that you would bring them into a particularly fruitful season as they know their leaders and esteem them highly, as they care for one another in the body, as they think of themselves in ways that orient their lives toward you. So help us, Lord. We trust in you as the one who is faithful, as the one who will do it. All for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.